This morning, I want to begin with a little talk about humility, because I'm so good at it. <laughs> Forgive me. It's going to be like that all day, I promise. And I want us to think about what is humility. Because I think about humility, we were talking about this yesterday with some of the guys, humility is easier to recognize what it isn't than what it is. We recognize when someone is not humble. We recognize when someone is arrogant. We recognize when that's not really how you should approach the situation. But I was asking the guys over lunch yesterday, how do you define what Christian humility looks like? And you would have thought I asked them to explain predestination to a goat. They were like, I don't know how to explain what Christian humility looks like. Christ is more, I'm less, and beyond that. And so this is an important thing for us to think about. Um, because when we see this example of John the Baptist here, his life is one of humility. Humility is something that is, that is rarely seen because humility is this character within us that is a heart issue. If we are prideful, uh, it may come out in our actions, it most often will, but very often it, it remains in our heart. And so the Lord knows what, what we desire. The Lord knows if we are humble or not. And if you are humble, you are rarely celebrated. You are rarely lifted up, especially in our culture. I mean, our, our culture is the epitome of you deserve this. You are perfect just as you are. You get everything you can for yourself. Humility is the opposite of every voice from secular culture that speaks into our lives. But yet humility is something that marks the life of a believer. I mean, what could be more countercultural than to humble yourself? What could be more countercultural to sit in the place of lowliness than to put yourself in a position of prominence? What could be more humble than to say Christ must increase, but I must decrease? And this is important, too, to recognize that many times Christians confuse humility for weakness in that we, we think, okay, well, I'm going to be humble, and so I'm going to let everyone say whatever they, they want to me, and I'm just going to beat myself up all the time. I'm going to be like those in the Middle Ages who walked in the middle of the street and flogged myself to show how humble I am. But that is also arrogance. Benjamin Franklin said that, that he tries so hard to be humble, and when he accomplishes humility, then he becomes prideful in how humble he is, and he has to start all over again. Right? And that is kind of the process of humility, of humbling ourselves and recognizing that as far as our identity, our value is not based on how others respond to us, not based on whether others recognize us or not, but that our value and our identity is found in Christ. For Benjamin Franklin, who did not know Christ, he would do that over and over and over and over again. For us who do know Christ, humility is something we can see in him as an example. And we can see this morning why he loved John the Baptist so much. Because John the Baptist, his whole life was marked with humility. What does Christian humility look like? As many of us know, if you've been a Christian for more than a day or two, you know the Christian life is one of being humbled. Every time you think you should stand, take heed lest you fall. Because when we pull ourselves up by our own abilities, our own desires to see other people validate us, the Lord has to humble us and remind us, like he does in 2 Corinthians, that you have nothing that has not been given to you by God. What does Christian humility look like? It looks a lot like I'm preparing all week as I want to preach this, this great sermon. And the Lord says, no, you're going to be sick on your main two preparation days. And you're going to have to trust in, in me because this is not about how much you can study. This is not about how much you can put words together. And so I've really just had to pray for the last three days. You ever have an assignment due or you have to do something and you're like, 
what am I going to do? And I'm, I read this passage 50 times and I got nothing. And I'm just looking at it like, I can tell you what this means, but I can't tell you what this means for your life. So I'm going to be honest with you. If it is good this morning, it is only because I've been sweating and praying in, in that order for the last three days about what I'm going to talk about this morning. And so the Lord reminded me about humility in that. And that means that humility is difficult. Because we've also heard, careful if you pray for humility, because God will give it to you. God will humble you. But I think there's a nice, succinct definition that that C.S. Lewis has, one of our favorite quotes we use all the time. Uh, C.S. Lewis says that humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less. Let that sink in. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, not saying woe is me and pushing yourself down, but thinking of yourself less. Not making you and what you need and what makes you happy and, and what makes you feel important the focus of all of your thoughts. Humility is saying that I'm going to put myself aside so that Christ can be exalted. I'm going to put myself aside so that my, my brother and sister can be encouraged. And humility is what John the Baptist showed us in what Jesus' example was. And we're going to see that this morning. So open your Bibles to John chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 22. So remember last week, this most famous verse in all of the Bible, for God so loved the world, we talked about the love of God. And now after this, John kind of tells us, he brings us into what's happening here. He's going to set the stage. And then John the Baptist kind of gives us his final address in the Gospel of John. So we're going to look at that this morning. Verse 22. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and the people were coming and being baptized, for John had not yet been put in prison. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, all are going to him. But John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. The father loves the son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, help your servant, a sinner, as his sins are many. I just pray this morning you would be exalted. You would be glorified. The name of Jesus that is above every other name. We put its proper prominence. 
And would, we would continue to decrease so that you would increase. We would continue to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength because you loved us first, sending your son for our sins. Lord, thank you for the faithful witnesses that come before us, that we know that you are God and you are true. Help us not just to be hearers of your word, but doers also. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we begin in verse 22. Uh, and this, We're going to set the scene here, a couple quick notes, and we're going to move on. So in verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there. And the people were coming and being baptized. Uh, John was also baptizing. The Lord came, but John just didn't sit back and say, Jesus is here, I've got nothing left to do. John continued baptizing. And I think this is an, an important note here uh, because in all the other Gospels, it seems like it goes directly from Jesus' temptation to, to John's imprisonment. And John tells us here in verse 24, for John had not yet been put in prison. So John, writing his gospel last, comes back with this perspective, telling everyone that I know you're familiar with Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, but I want to tell you that there was a period where Jesus and John were ministering at the same time. John saw the Lamb of God. He saw him being baptized. He saw him coming out of the water. He heard the voice of the Father. He saw the Spirit descend. And he still continued with baptizing and preparing people for purification. And so uh, John was about his master's business. Even when the master came, he was going to continue working until the master was finished with him. I think that's an important detail. That's what we need to know about what's, what's going on. And, and you can kind of see what's, what's happening here, that John and his group is baptizing here, and Jesus and his group is baptizing there. What happens in the natural heart of man is competition begins. What's going on over there? What are these people doing? Look what happens in verse 25. Now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And so purification here is preparation for worship. It was the cleansing that got people ready before going before God. And this is this baptism symbolism. So that's what's, what's going on here is in order to worship God, you need to repent and be cleansed of your sins. And, and so John is participating in that and so is Jesus and his disciples. And this is a tension among the Jews. Because the Jews have their idea of what should happen, but now the Messiah is here. And they're still unsure about what's going on, and many of them do not believe. And this tension actually continues. And so we'll see this next week. It should be on the same page for most of your Bibles, but if you look at chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, look what it says. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, another John footnote here, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and, apart and departed again for Galilee. There was a tension here. The Pharisees had it out for him. And so there was this, this competition between this religious system and the one who came to fulfill that entire system. And there was a tension, and it's going to continue throughout the book of John, and John touches on this a lot. Verse 26, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing and all are coming to him. You think we're the only ones who debate over baptism? They were debating over it back then. You think we're the only ones who use hyperbole? They're all coming to him. No, they're not. because you're, you're still there. I mean, obviously. But, you know, not much has changed. This, this human nature is very competitive. These guys are standing up for their teacher. John, Jesus is taking some of your shine. 
Jesus is taking glory away from you. You deserve this attention. And they even condemned themselves with their very words. They said, Rabbi, to whom you bore witness. They heard John's witness. They heard who John said this Jesus was. And yet they still are condemning Jesus's ministry. And this happens all the time in ministry. Look what they're doing over there. Look how many people are going into this building. Look what this person is is doing. This starts from an early age. This is ingrained in us. Mommy, how come they have more toys than I do? How come this person can do that and I can't? How come they can get away with it and I can't? Why is everyone recognizing them and not me? This desire within each one of us to be exalted by man, to, to be recognized and to please men, it is inherent within our sinful nature. And it is such a powerful tool of distraction and discontentment and discouragement to constantly compare ourselves to others. And too often, when speaking to Christians, they don't realize that we are on the same team. They don't realize that the real question you should be asking is not why people are going over there, but is Christ being glorified? Is Christ working there? Who is getting the glory? Those are the questions that John's disciples should have been asking. Is God getting the glory? Is this of God? Not why are they going, why are they going over there and not coming over here? Not how many or not why not us, but is God being glorified in what's going on over there? I think that is an encouragement for us as we, as we think about other ministries and, and other churches. Uh, someone told me once that the other side outnumbers us by a lot. And that's, that's very true. But our tendency is, is to be territorial. Our tendency is to kind of hoard our own and draw distance between us and other brothers and sisters. And so this temptation was around. But thankfully, John is wise and John has humility. And look how John responds. Verse 27, John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. John recognizes and gives credit where it is due. If Jesus is doing anything, it is because of the Father. It is in accordance with heaven. And John recognizes that. And that's such an encouragement to us because our ministry is not one of stats. Ministry is not one of just numbers, but is a heavenly commission to exalt Christ. And John knows that. He says in verse 28, You yourselves bear witness that I said I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. John knew his role, and he describes it beautifully here in verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. One who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John understands the significance of what's going on here. I think this is a really helpful explanation, and uh, William Barclay in his commentary explains this role of the friend of the bridegroom, and it's a beautiful picture, this term in the Hebrew, uh, it's shashban, and here's what he says. The friend of the bridegroom had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding, he took out the invitations, he presided over the wedding feast, he brought the bride and the groom together. And he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. As a high task. He would open the door only when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. 
When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he let him in and went away rejoicing, for his task was completed, and the lovers were together. He did not grudge the bridegroom the bride. He knew that his only task had been to bring the bride and bridegroom together. And when that task was done, he was willingly and gladly faded out of the picture. What an amazing picture of John's role. What an amazing picture of how John viewed Jesus as his best man. He's not, he's not jealous for his brother's wife. He is rejoicing with him that his bride is being prepared. And this is what John came to do. To prepare the bride in purification. To wash them white. To, to preach forgiveness of sins before, because the kingdom of God is at hand. And that wedding that he was preparing for is what we get ushered into as the bride of Christ. John's job to prepare the bride for the bridegroom. We are the recipients of that, that ministry. And John didn't come so that he should be exalted and he should be lifted up. That he would do what he was required to do. He would slowly remove himself. So that all of the attention would be on the groom and his bride. And in that, his joy is complete. I love that. He rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. Can we say that? Can we say that our joy is complete in knowing the Savior? Can we say that our joy is complete in being washed and purified, being prepared for this great wedding feast that we are promised in Revelation 19? Is our joy complete in knowing our Savior? That's such a deep question. Because some of us don't know how to be joyful and humble at the same time. Some of us don't know how to walk in humility, but also rejoice. It's like, I can, I can do one. It's like walking and chewing gum. I don't know how to do both. But we are to be people who are humble and joyful. And then John, in that, gives the greatest declaration that any believer can. What does a Christian life of humility look like? Look at verse 30. He must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. What does the Christian life look like? He must increase, but I must decrease. He must. I must. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. This has to be done. This is not up for debate. He must increase. I must decrease. And this language is not of you must lift Christ up once and you must be humbled once. But this is an ongoing process of Christ increasing and us decreasing, Christ becoming greater and greater in our lives and in our ministry, in our pride and our arrogance and our desire for our self-exaltation to become, to decrease and decrease and decrease. And as that happens, we look more like Christ and he is glorified. And the beauty of that is that he has promised that those who humble themselves, he will exalt on the last day. In this humility, is not without its reward because he notices, even if no one else does, even if no one sees you humble yourself, even if no one sees you exalt Christ, that's why Paul tells us to do everything unto the Lord. Do it with a heart of rejoicing and gladness and be a people of joy and gladness because we are that bride. In Christ, by trusting in him and putting your faith in him, you have been washed clean and you are being prepared for this ceremony and he will exalt you. And all the saints throughout history will celebrate together in this beautiful marriage picture. And this is the culmination of all John's witness. 
Even in just this little passage, we see some things that John have said. John recognizes Jesus' heavenly ministry. John was sent to declare this Messiah. He rejoices in being the best man and not the bridegroom himself. And he has complete joy in his role. And the culmination of all that is that he is greater. But why shouldn't he increase? How could I ever try to increase myself in my own fame? John's whole ministry was marked with humility. You can see why John the Apostle loves John the Baptist. So what does this mean practically? As Christians, what does this mean for us? I think some important questions to ask ourselves here. Are we able to put our pride aside and our desire for recognition and our desire for validation aside so that Christ can increase? It's a sobering question. It's a difficult question. Does our desire to be right exceed our desire to be a witness for Christ? The guys talk about this a lot. As guys, we want to win arguments. But do we care more about the people we are arguing with? than the fact that we can check one more victory off on our own belt. This is a real temptation for us. How often do we try to show people how smart, how capable, how talented, how able they are so they can exalt us? How often do we look for people for the validation that only Christ can give us? How often do we try to increase ourselves? And maybe we'll get to Christ at some point. Or are we able to humble ourselves so that Christ can be exalted? Knowing that he gives grace to the humble. His grace is not for the arrogant because they're doing it on their own strength. His grace is for the humble. For some of us, that's easier than others. But do we enjoy, do we have the joy that John the Baptist has, giving God the glory more than receiving credit ourselves? Do we boast in ourselves, or do we boast in Christ and what Christ has done? So speaking of boasting, people ask me all the time, how is the church doing? And I will be honest, I boast about you guys all the time. You may not hear this that often from me, but it is true. Because so often you talk to pastors, you talk to people in ministry, and oh, how many people are attending? What are you guys doing? What, what programs have you done? You know, what's your budget and things? It's ridiculous things that people talk about. But when people say, how's the church going? I said, it's going great. And I am so encouraged by the humility of you guys. I love to see the way you serve one another, the way you welcome one another. When someone comes and I ask them, well, um, what did you think about the church? Or why did you come back? Because people love me. People welcomed me. You guys are humble when you get together. And let's not lie. We all struggle with our own desire to exalt ourselves, but that does not manifest itself here. And I love that. And that is so encouraging. And you should be able to boast in a godly way in what Christ has done in you and what Christ has done in this this body. And I want to continue to be people who are noted by our humility, who are noted by our grace, our love for one another, our service for one another. We will be doctrinal people. We will be rooted in the word of God. But we cannot be rooted in the the word of God if we don't preach the whole counsel of God. If we don't declare what Christ requires of us. To love mercy, to do justice, to walk humbly with our God. To exalt Christ, to decrease ourselves. And that will be the witness that will bring people to Christ. Because as you serve them, as you love them, as you are humble before them, they will hear your words. Those who who are arrogant and are 
quick-tempered and who are, who are argumentative, their witness has no foundation. So I just want to encourage you guys in that. And I really do. I brag about you guys all the time. And I love what, what God is doing here. And every time my pride gets in, in mind, I start to compare myself to other pastors. I have to humble myself and be reminded of each and every one of you who encourage me every week. He must increase, but I must decrease. Verse 31, John continues this exhortation of what it means to be a believer. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth, and he speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. John is contrasting himself with Jesus here. When the heavenly arise, he humbles himself. The heavenly is here. There is no more concern for the earthly. We now have the real thing. We have the eternal. Why be concerned with the temporal? The heavenly should increase and the earthly decreases. Also another mark of the life of a believer. When your eyes are opened, and you have ears to hear, and you understand kingdom realities, you realize that the things of this earth go strangely dim in the light of his glorious grace. And, and heavenly things cover our vision because we have an eternal perspective. And this is what John had. And he continues, verse 32, he bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Many of us have not thought about this passage, but he bears witness to what he has seen and heard. What has Jesus seen and heard? Where was he before this? I don't think he's bearing witness to what he learned in his father's carpentry shop. I don't think he's bearing witness to what he, he learned from the rabbis. This is the eternal son of God. He is bearing witness to what he has seen and heard. He is bearing witness to eternity. He is bearing witness to perfect fellowship with the Father and the Holy Spirit. He is bringing uh, indescribable, eternal, eternal realities down to earth. He is bearing witness to the love that he shared with the Father before the world began, to the glory that he has on his throne. He is bearing witness of all that. He came down to earth. His life is marked with taking on flesh so that he can explain heaven to us. So he can bring us into that eternal kingdom. He is bearing witness of eternity. And John is humbled that he gets to be the friend of the groom. And brothers and sisters in Christ, we get to be the bride of that groom. Dressed up for the day that we will be reunited with him in perfection. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Get a little bit of hyperbole, but also theologically, no one receives it on their own. Without the Holy Spirit working, they're not able to receive this testimony. But they don't receive it. Why don't they receive it? Why do people reject Christ? I love when, when new Christians have eyes open for the first time. This is great news. Everyone's just going to believe the way I did. What, why don't they? Because the frightening reality to this is, is that if you believe the witness of Jesus, that he is God from all eternity, and that the throne and all majesty and glory and honor belongs to him, then you have to believe it doesn't belong to you. And that is something the world will reject every time. Because if Jesus is on the throne, you can't be too. And that witness they will reject. 
Another thing the world can't, the other reason the world can't accept him is because you can't receive Jesus impartial. Because many people say, I want this Jesus. I want, I want the Jesus of, of, of the miracles. I want the Jesus of the nice teaching. I don't want the Jesus who's going to come back to judge me for my sins. I don't want the Jesus who took on the wrath of God, who requires me to deny myself and take up my cross and follow him. I don't want that Jesus. I want the friendly Hallmark greeting card Jesus. That's not Jesus. You can't accept him impartial. And so if you reject any part of him, you reject all of him. If you reject him on his throne, if you reject him as judge, if you reject him as perfect and requiring you to deny everything of yourself, you reject all of him. And this is why the world does not receive him. Because it requires more than anyone is willing to give. But Jesus said, if you are not willing to leave all behind for me, if you're not willing to take up your cross and follow me, you are not worthy of me. And the world does not receive that. The world does not love that. But those who are of the Spirit receive things of the Spirit. Verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. By believing that Jesus is God, by believing his testimony, you affirm the one and only true God. He is true in all his ways, and your new life is sealed in him by faith. By believing it, it is sealed. Signed, sealed, delivered, never to be shaken, never to be removed, never to be separated from that love. Because of our faith in him. And with that faith, we are saying that, God, you are true. You are God, and I am not. You are on the throne where you should be, and I am here, your lowly servant. You must increase. I must decrease. That is so hard for people until you realize how the Spirit enables you and encourages you in that. How you realize how easy that is. Because his yoke is easy and his burden is light. You know that he is Lord. He is in charge. And that you humble yourself before him. And you know that God is true. For he who God has sent utters the words of God. For he gives the Spirit without measure. Why should we believe Jesus? How do we know what he says is true? First of all, he's above all, the one who comes from heaven. He's not only above us in power and prominence, but in understanding. His ways are higher than our ways. His understanding is higher than our understanding. He is above all. And he testifies from that position, from that perspective. He testifies from heaven. He testifies the very words of God. He speaks the very counsel of God. The counsel of God, the whole counsel of God, and nothing but the counsel of God. He speaks God's very words. That's how we can believe him. And how do we know that this is true? Because the Father loves him. He gave the Spirit without measure. Jesus is speaking with an unbridled Holy Spirit. His entire ministry is marked by the fullness of the Spirit. Raising the dead, walking on water, healing the, li- the, the lame and the blind and the sick, proclaiming the kingdom of God in the full power of the Spirit. Isn't it just amazing that the Spirit that worked in Christ to do all those things resides in us? And even if there's just a grain, an ounce of that Spirit within us, how encouraged should we be? How fearful should we be? That spirit that was given without measure to Christ is given with measure to us. 
even if you think your measure is less than it should be. Rejoice that the Spirit has been given to you through faith in Christ Jesus. Because that was what marked Jesus' ministry, and that's what will mark our ministry, this Spirit, because of the Father's love. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. There is much to learn here. John, John the Baptist, the same one who baptized Jesus, who heard the words of the Father from heaven, who saw the Holy Spirit come down like a dove, this is his testimony. And he is testifying of the testimony of the Father. And what is that? Father sent John to come before the Son. He sent the Son. He gave the Son the Spirit without measure, and he loves the Son. And it says here that, he, that the Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. How do we know that Jesus is true? He is loved by the Father, sent by the Father, all things given to him by the Father. Remember last week we spent so much time looking at the love of God. God so loved the world that he sent his only son. He loves the son so much that he put all things into his hand, everything into his hand. And he gave that son for us. I want to quote Jay right now. Are you kidding me? He loved the son so much that he gave him everything. He gave that son for us. How much does God love us? How much does God love his son? And how much should we love the son because of that? What an example John the Baptist is to recognize this. Verse 36. This is the final testimony. John the Baptist. This would be like the end of the movie or something. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This is the final testimony of John the Baptist. The first time we see him, he is the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. And next time we see him, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And after the baptism, he says, I know and I am convinced. I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And now he says, whoever believes in him has eternal life. If you deny Christ, if someone denies Christ, they're not just denying him, they're denying the witness of John the Baptist. They're denying the witness of the Father who sent him, and they're ultimately denying the witness of the Spirit who filled him and completed his ministry. You are blaspheming the work of the triune God and the witness of the herald who came before him. And John is speaking this to people around him. Trust and believe. Believe in him. Because this witness is true. Not just my witness, but the witness of the Son from heaven and the witness of the Father from eternity. And the witness of the Spirit in completion. There's an interesting contrast here that should uh, bring to mind something that we've been studying in, in Romans. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever does not obey the Son shall see life. Usually we get belief and not belief, but here there's a contrast between belief and obedience. We have eternal life through belief. By faith we are saved. But by disobedience, we shall not see life. There is death by disobedience. Because Romans, Paul tells us over and over and over again, without Christ you are still under the law. Without Christ, you are still required to keep the law yourself. Without faith in him, you are responsible for every jot and tittle. And if you break one, you have broken them all. So there's a contrast here by John. You can either believe 
Or you can try to be obedient on your own, and trust me, you're going to be disobedient. And if you do, the wrath of God remains on you. This is also a part of Jesus that the world does not want to accept. The wrath of God. Paul tells us in Ephesians 2 that we are children of wrath. By our very nature, the wrath of God remains because it was always there. We were born as children of wrath. We were born into condemnation. We were born with no hope on our own. The wrath of God, the death sentence that could not be removed by us. The wrath of God remains without belief. So what is John saying here? Like the old hymn, trust and obey. There is no other way. Be happy in Jesus. Trust and obey. Sometimes the simplest things, this faith in Christ, believe in him, believe in my witness, believe in Jesus' witness, believe in the witness of the Father. As we conclude this morning, those of you who have been here since the beginning of John, you're like, all right, this is a broken record. I heard you say this already. Believe. I get it. Believe. Whosoever believes. Those who believe. You must believe. Why do you keep saying it? John the evangelist is saying it because nothing else matters until you believe. And we can't get into the rest of this book until you understand belief. And you can't understand those who you speak to and those you witness to unless you understand. They need to believe first. Nothing matters until you believe. You must believe. You must be born again. You must be born again. This is a broken record. And this is the record that's going to keep skipping and playing the same tune over and over and over and over again until Christ comes. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. The reason why so many people come to faith in John's gospel is because if you read through John's gospel and you hear you must believe a hundred times, you are either going to reject that message or receive that message. That's why we're going through this book. Because if you don't know Christ, you must repent and believe. You must believe in him. And if you know Christ, our lives are to be marked by believing in him, trusting in him. And when you know him, and when he is on the throne, and when he is exalted and lifted up, you have no problem humbling yourself because God does not need you, but you need him desperately, as Deshaun prayed this morning. We are going through this book so that you will know the importance of belief in Jesus, so that you will know who Jesus is, so that you will hear John's witness, and like him, you will want to be a voice crying out in the wilderness. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We want to be people who can explain this, who can speak this to people. We want to be light in the midst of darkness. We want to be people who can give a hope for the, for the light, an explanation for the hope that lies within us. That's why John's gospel is so valuable. We're not going to skip over the passages that just repeat themselves. John says it for emphasis. He repeats it because it's important and nothing else is more important. John loves John the Baptist because Jesus loved him. And he loved Jesus and he proved it with his obedience and his humility. Let us be people who are known for our humility and our obedience. He must increase, but we must decrease. Let's pray. From all eternity, you knew us, knew our sin, 
He knew that we would reject you. He knew that we would be deserving of your wrath. You knew that in and of ourselves, we do not have the ability to believe. But you sent your son, perfect, to be born of a virgin, to walk this earth so that he could live the life we couldn't. Thank you for the witness of John the Baptist. Thank you for the witness of the Son. Thank you that the kingdom came to be preached here on earth. Thank you for the faithful sending of the Father. Thank you for the completion of the Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving us that Spirit. Lord, I just pray for believers in here that they would be encouraged, that they would live by that name, believers, that they would believe these words are true, believe that you are true and live like it. Live boldly and confidently boasting in your name with all grace and love and humility. I pray if there's any among us who does not know you, that they would trust and believe for the first time. Let's pray as we prepare for communion that you prepare our hearts. That you reveal any unrepentant sins within us. That you humble us, any pride or arrogance that you would root us out, that you would make us miserable in our sin before you. Lord, prepare us Come before your table. Work in us purification. That we would grow in holiness. That we would grow into your image. Let your love resonate within us. That Christ would humble himself to death, even death on a cross. So that we might become the children of God. Screaming, Abba, Father. You have adopted me because you love me. Let's pray that you prepare all of our hearts for communion at this time. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.